Well, good morning. My name's Chris Rudell. I'm the guest speaker this morning. It seems like such a long time since I've been here. But I want to thank uh, all of you who prayed for praying for our trip. It was a great trip. Um, we taught a couple of times, and we really went uh, wanting to minister over there to the people we came in contact with, but uh, feels like we were ministered to far more than we ministered to anyone there. Uh, next week, Brian's going to give a little bit more of a report. And this Friday night, the 14th, we're going to have a gathering over in the fireside room at 7 o'clock for any of you who want to hear more about uh, the trip and what's happening with the, the different field staff. I'd encourage you all to come. But I wanted to just mention a couple of things uh, before we get into to our sermon. First of all, uh, I, we thoroughly enjoyed Brian and Kay Grant. They are great people. They, uh, after two, a little over two weeks of being together every day, all day, they uh, didn't get too sick of me, which speaks highly of their maturity and tolerance, or at least they didn't show that they got sick of me which <laughs> may speak to their acting ability, but they, uh, it was just a great time. We enjoyed the Mannings, the Browns, the, the Petticords. But I wanted to, uh, to highlight just one thing about uh, our trip to Jordan. Um, in fact, let me ask uh, the tape. Now I want to move on to our Easter celebration. Behind uh, me is a cross. That's what Easter is all about, really. In fact, uh, that's what our faith is really all about. For the next four weeks, we're going to be moving toward Easter. We planned our study in Luke to be here at this time. Just like we spent those four weeks preparing for Christmas, we want to take the next weeks preparing for Easter. And like I said, Easter is fundamentally about the cross. Our faith is really about the cross. Paul speaks of this over and over in his writings. 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And then later in the, the same chapter, he says, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to God, or foolishness to Gentiles, but to those whom God has called both Jews and Gentiles, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Then in the next chapter, When I came to you, brothers, I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom, as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. See, the cross is the testimony about God. Nothing tells us more about God, about His character, about His love. Nothing tells us more about our Lord Jesus Christ than the cross. Nothing. Not, not the beauty of creation, not the power of the Old Testament law, not even the Christmas story speaks as loudly or as clearly about the character and love of God than, than the cross. The cross tells us more about ourselves than any, than any other thing. The cross, the message of the cross is the gospel. It is the good news. It is our salvation that Jesus Christ died on the cross in payment for our sins. And as a result, we have access 
to a relationship with the Father. New life in Christ as he was raised from the dead. See, the cross is the message that God did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And God did it at incredible, unthinkable cost to himself. See, the, the, the cross is the heart and soul of our faith. And that's why we're focusing on it. But the cross is also a hard lesson. When we were in London, we saw some punkers. There was this one guy who had a a skull hanging from an earring. It was not attractive. But it said something strong about this young man's view of life, about him. Even though we have become used to it, even though we have prettied it up, the cross is just such a symbol. It is not a pretty symbol. It is, a, it is a symbol of death, of pain, of injustice. And it is an ugly symbol when we see it in that light. But it's also a beautiful symbol because God has taken it and turned it into the symbol of forgiveness, of love, of life. That's the, the greatness and the character of our God. But to catch the, 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 the real power of that transformation, we've got to see the ugly side. And that's what we're going to start with this morning. Turn with me to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, verse 63. 22:63. Now, Jesus has been arrested. He's being held until morning when the Sanhedrin, the Jewish high court, can legally convene. He's being held by the temple guards, some Jewish soldiers. Verse 63. The men who were guarding Jesus began mocking and beating him. They blindfolded him and demanded, prophesy, who hit you? And they said many other insulting things to him. Now, what do these soldiers have against Jesus that would make them want to treat him like this, make them want to abuse him? I mean, this is raw physical and emotional abuse. What did they have against Jesus? Nothing. They didn't have a thing against him. Which makes the message of the human heart even more powerful. You see, their leaders hated Jesus and had turned Jesus over to their power. And kind of a a mob mentality sets in. Probably one of them said something ridiculing. And everybody laughed. And so somebody else said something. and, and, And everybody started jumping in. And it grew. Pretty soon all of the... The frustration and the anger that was deep down in their hearts just started spilling out and kind of took on a life of its own. And as it spilled out, it grew in in, in intensity and in perversity. And the mask of civilization just kind of dropped away. Now, we may look at, at these soldiers and kind of shake our head in amazement. How could they be so cruel? But it shouldn't surprise us. This shouldn't mystify us. We see it all the time. We see it in the news. Maybe some unfortunate individual who's ended up in the wrong part of town and tormentors descend on him or her from everywhere. We see it in a big city. We are tempted to think this is a problem of the cities. Then we hear of it happening in a little town, too. We see it in racism. When, when, when uh, an individual, when someone is, is beaten or killed by a mob, black or white. 
but even more subtly, and just the put-downs, the, the push-aways, the, the, the discrimination that can go on so often. We see it in the, in the killings in Bosnia and Rwanda. We see it all around out there, and we're tempted to shake our head and say, what could, what could be going on here? How could that be? But I see it in us, even in small ways. There have been many times that I've been into, in, a, in a conversation with a group of people and somebody's name comes up. Maybe a, 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 a politician's name. Or maybe the name of somebody who's leading another group or another church. Or maybe in a discussion with family members, a family member's name comes up. Maybe it's a person of the opposite sex and I'm with a group of guys. Or, or maybe it's uh, someone who has been caught in some failure or sin. Somebody says something depreciating of that person. Everybody kind of laughs a little bit. And pretty soon somebody else says something. And again, it grows. And before long, without anyone intending to, it, 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 it grows into something where everybody's turning on this person, saying things that they're ashamed of later, or at least should be ashamed of later. Things that should never be said behind someone's back. You see, this is just a small verbal instance of what sometimes gets huge and physical. See, this is the unmasking of the human heart. The, the, the revealing of that powerful, perverse tendency in all of us to try to feel better by putting someone else down, by, 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 by speaking a word that kind of detracts from somebody else, or even by physically, emotionally, Abusing someone else. In Jesus' case, it is the ultimate unmasking. Because here is a person, the only person who is absolutely innocent. You know, often the victim of our tongues has done something maybe to hurt us or done something that, that could be criticized, that's worthy of criticism. But with Jesus, there's absolutely no justification. None at all. And these soldiers, I think if we're honest, aren't so different than we. We needn't shake our head. We cannot feel superior. See, the reality is the road to the cross not only unmasks Jesus' righteous character, but it unmasks our unrighteousness, our need for a Savior. Now let's uh, think of Jesus' righteousness. Here he was taking this abuse off of these petty, no-account soldiers. I mean, he could have turned each one of them into a conscious, painful, quivering mass of human jelly if, if he wanted to, just with a thought. But he didn't. Here, here's the creator of the universe taking this off of these guys. Now, I could see myself taking this kind of thing off of them because there were more of them than me or because they were stronger than I. I could take this off of them if I had no choice. You see, Jesus had a choice. He was passive, not because of weakness. He was passive because of strength. He protected them at his own expense. Recently, there's been, there was a um, um, kind of a review of the circumstances around the deaths 
of Nate Saint and Jim Elliott and those other missionaries that were killed by the Alka Indians in the 50s. And, and this inquiry pointed out, one of the things it pointed out was that each of those missionaries was armed with a gun. Now, none of the Indians that attacked them had ever seen a gun. They didn't know what a gun could do. And yet these men refused to shoot. Not one Indian, or not one missionary shot an Indian. They fired into the air to try to scare them away. But they refused to fire on them, even as they were being killed one by one. And years later, when those Indians that were in the attack or, or were in that tribe came to understand what a gun was, what it could do, and what those men could have done to them if they had chosen. Those Indians were struck to their heart with astonishment. They realized that those men had a power source that they didn't have, a power to love and protect, a power not to use the destructive force at their disposal to harm them. Those Indians gave their lives to the Jesus that was in these men. Let's go on. Verse 66. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Christ, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I ask you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. They all asked, are you then the Son of God? He replied, you are right in saying, I am. Then they said, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. All right, now Jesus is standing before the Jewish leaders. They've already made up their mind that they're going to execute him. They're just looking for any possible justification for this. So they ask Jesus, are you the Christ? He says, come on. This is not an honest question. You're not asking that because you want to know the truth. We don't have a dialogue going here. There's no discussion. You won't answer my questions. But then he goes ahead and he answers their question. He alludes to the Old Testament, specifically Daniel 7, referring to himself as the Son of Man. He says, from now on, I will be seated at the right hand of mighty God. See, Jesus politely yet assertively gives them the truth. He tells them what they were wanting to know. He doesn't enter into their deception. He calls it like it is. But neither does he rail at them or withdraw from them in, in sullen anger. Again, he lovingly gives them the truth. Again, I, I'm struck by how different he is th than we are, than I am. I mean, he knew they were going to kill him. What did he have to lose? How could he not take a few shots verbally? How could he not have railed at them? I would have been screaming at them. Uh, 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 you know, I, I would have been accusing them, threatening them, telling them that they had no right to be doing what they're doing, telling them they, they were hypocrites, yelling at them in frustration and anger. But Jesus quietly, calmly, lovingly just speaks the truth to them. Again, this is strength. Our neighbors used to have a, a, a huge, a great big... Um, a golden retriever. This guy had a head about this big. <laughs> I don't know. He was probably 90 pounds. He was a big one. Thick skull, big teeth, powerful jaw. We have a chihuahua. <laughs> a little tiny 
dog, you know, all yap, insignificant little teeth, <laughs> weak as a mouse. And sometimes we would walk the two together. And when someone would come up to pet the dogs, a stranger would come up, that chihuahua would go berserk. I mean, he's yapping, he's nipping, his hair's standing up, he is freaking out. Why? Because he's weak and he's afraid. He's very aware that absolutely everything out there is tougher than he is <laughs> and can harm him. But that uh, retriever, and he's got absolutely no fear. And he has no reason to fear. There's nothing that could hurt him out there uh, short of a, a large truck. So his response to a stranger is a wagging tail and a ready lick. He is secure in his strength. And you see, Jesus, in the midst of this abuse, in the midst of the attacks of his tormentors, is absolutely secure in his strength. That's why he can love them like this. That's why he can act the way he did. But the Jewish leaders, they don't recognize this. They just grab on to, to the opportunity they have to accuse him. He said he was son of God. Uh, that's tantamount to saying he's equal with God. And for a mere human being to say that is blasphemy. They don't even consider the fact that in this case it was true. They don't, they're not even open to that option, that, that possibility. They now have their excuse to have him executed. Blasphemy in Jewish law is punishable by death. Well, unfortunately, they're under Roman control and... The Romans didn't let them execute anyone. The only one with the authority to execute was the governor, the Roman governor. So they're forced to come to him to try to get him to, to, to approve of the execution, to execute Jesus. But at least they have their excuse, and that justifies anything that they may do. Jesus deserves to die, and that justifies all the lies that they start to tell. So often, when we think the end justifies the means... And we're gone. We're wrong. When we think a lie is justified, it is not. But anyway, they go to Pilate, the, the Roman governor, with all of their lies. Verse 1 of chapter 23. Then the whole assembly rose and led him off to Pilate. And they begin to accuse him, saying, We have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be a king. So Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. Then Pilate announced to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no basis for a charge against this man. But they insisted. He stirs up the people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and has come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if this man was a Galilean. When he heard that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Now, first of all, notice what the Jewish leaders accuse Jesus of. They accuse him of subverting the nation, of opposing taxes, and of, uh, of being a king. Really, this is just one accusation. Rebellion against Rome. Subverting the nation means moving the nation away from sub submission to Rome and, and opposing taxes, refusing to give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Setting himself up as a king and as an alternative to Caesar. These guys knew this was lies. Jesus had spoken face to face with them, specifically on each one of these charges. They knew it was a lie. 
In fact, the reason they were so angry, so hateful to Jesus, is because Jesus refused to make his mission a political one. Jesus refused to oppose Rome. That's why they turned on him. That's why they hated him. Because he would not buy into their political agenda. So they lie. They tell bald-faced lies. They lie big. But Pilate, Pilate's no dummy. He knows these are lies. He is an astute politician. He had to start wondering to himself when these Jewish leaders who have always hated Rome, who have opposed Rome at every turn, suddenly became so interested in, in the honor and in the interests of Rome. These guys hate Rome. Pilate could see through them. And Pilate is a, is a good governor. He had to be watching Jesus. Jesus was not a secret. There were thousands of people coming to Jesus. Pilate must have been watching what was happening. And obviously, Pilate's assessment was that Jesus was no political threat. Jesus was a good citizen. Now, he does ask Jesus if uh, Jesus is a king. And Jesus answers, yes, I am. But in John's account, we see that Jesus at that point also explained that his kingdom was not of this world. And Pilate knew enough to understand that. So Pilate gives his verdict, not guilty. You see, up to this point, as far as the Roman authorities are concerned, this has been a good trial. He, he's heard, the, the judge has heard the charges against the accused, he's considered the evidence, and he has made a just verdict. Pilate did his job. But it doesn't stop there. The the Jewish leaders are, are, are adamant. They are, are insisting. And one of them kind of incidentally mentions that Jesus came down from Galilee. And immediately Pilate's ears perked up. He found a way out. In fact, uh, a cunning politician that he is, he thought, well, here's a chance for him to use this whole situation for political purposes. He decides to send Jesus to Herod. Now, Herod and Pilate were political rivals in the area. Herod controlled the territory north of, of, of where Pilate was governor. Herod w would have loved to take over Pilate's territory, wanted to, was trying to. Herod and Pilate had sparred politically off and on for quite some time. But Pilate sees in this situation kind of a win-win opportunity for himself. He sends Jesus to Herod, thereby kind of expressing to Herod. Herod will read that as, as Pilate recognizing his authority. Herod was in, in Jerusalem for the Passover celebration. And, and, and when Pilate sent Jesus, Herod would see that as Pilate saying, okay, we, I respect your authority. And Herod's attitude politically would soften towards Pilate. And then on top of that, Herod would be stuck with the problem of what to do with Jesus. I mean, Pilate wins all around. Doesn't matter to him. The fact that Jesus is innocent and he knows he's innocent and he knows that justice demands Jesus' immediate release. All Pilate cares about is his political career. So he sends Herod or sends Jesus to Herod, verse eight. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased. For a long time he had been wanting to see him. From what he had heard about him, he hoped to see him perform some miracle. He plied him with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. 
Now, Herod is a cynic. He is completely jaded. All that matters to him at this point in his life is to be entertained, to be interested, to to find something to stimulate his curiosity. Herod loved to show. Herod loved to listen to John the Baptist preach until he murdered him. Herod never responded to the repeated opportunities that God had given him to repent through John the Baptist. Now his heart was completely, absolutely calloused. And here's Jesus standing before the murderer of his cousin, John. Jesus isn't angry. Jesus doesn't lash out. He's not vicious. But neither does he pander to Herod's pride or or his power. Jesus refuses to say anything. Jesus refuses to put on a magic show. So Herod and his soldiers begin to uh, ridicule, to abuse Jesus, to make fun of him. Again, we see human stupidity and cruelty. They're trying to humiliate Jesus. They're trying to make him feel like nothing. But again, we see Jesus' strength. His sad, probably, not sullen, but sad, quiet strength. Jesus is in control. He is not cringing in fear, nor is he railing in anger. He's strong and in control. So Herod dresses Jesus up in mock royal clothes, sends him back to Pilate. This was kind of a joke between them. Here is the king of the Jews. And not only are are they making fun of Jesus, they're making fun of God's people, the Jews. Here's the kind of pitiful king that they deserve. Pilate appreciates the joke. He thinks it's pretty clever. And at that point, the two become friends when they had been enemies before. Sometimes uh, hatred of Christ is the only thing Some people have in common, yet there seems to be a bond, a connection. In our society even, sometimes uh, disdain for the gospel and for Christianity is the only thing that, that connects some people, but they still feel that connection, that bond. But anyway, uh, Pilate has Jesus back, verse 13. Pilate called together the chief priests and the rulers of the people, or rulers and the people, excuse me, And he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was inciting the people to rebellion. I have examined him in your presence and have found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod, for he sent him back to us. As you can see, he has done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and then release him. With one voice, they cried out, away with this man. Release Barabbas to us. Barabbas had been thrown into prison for insurrection in the city and for murder. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! For the third time he spoke to them. Why? What crime has this man committed? I have found in him no grounds for the death penalty. Therefore, I will have him punished and then release him. But with loud shouts, they insistently demanded that he be crucified. And their shouts prevailed. So Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they asked for, and he surrendered Jesus to their will. This is Pilate at his worst. This is uh, 
perhaps the most insidious of evils. See, Pilate was not a bad man. Pilate was a good man. He was just the governor. His job was to keep peace. He didn't have anything against Jesus. In fact, he was favorably disposed to Jesus. He kind of liked Jesus. But his own political neck was on the line. Out of pure personal self-interest, Pilate sacrificed Jesus. Now, how many of us ignore Jesus out of pure perceived personal self-interest? I mean, we may be favorably disposed toward him, but we don't want him in the way of, of our goals in life. We don't want him in the way of our business. They don't, we don't want him in the way of our lifestyle. We, like I said, we may be personally favorably disposed. Just keep him out of the way. And when he gets in the way, we discover that we'll push to get him out of the way. We'll do what we need to shove him or anybody who speaks for him out of the way. You see... Jesus stood for something. It wasn't that, that, these, that, that Pilate hated Jesus for it. It's just that what he stood for was in the way. There's spiritually almost nothing more deadly than insipid, passionless disinterest. Just get it out of the way. Now, the, the, the fact is that most governments, almost universally, governments don't really care about truth or about uh, religion. That's, that's true of, of the government in Jordan, where our sister church is. They don't really care about religion or truth. Uh, they don't have anything against Christians. They're good citizens. Well, why then do they, they suppress the gospel? Why did Abdullah go to prison? Because they want to keep the peace. And when people become Christians, they come to faith in Christ from a Muslim background, families get upset and religious zealots start burning houses and pretty soon you got riots and it's all a mess. And they want to keep the peace. They don't care about truth. They just want to keep things under control. People, that's true in America. Though we have many godly men and women in government, ultimately taken as a whole, government doesn't care about right or wrong or truth. It cares about stability, for, for commercial profit, and for political control. It's important that we understand that when we're dealing with government. People there, for the most part, aren't opposed to the gospel. There are some who are aggressively against it, but most aren't. They're good people. It's just they don't like the, the disruption that's caused by people who stand up for what they believe. Again, it's, it's this, it was the same in Rome. Now, notice something else in this passage. Luke points out to us that this was the third time that Pilate tried to acquit Jesus. Now, why? Three times. What's the significance of three? That's the only number that, that Luke mentions for us. Well, if we back up a little, realizing that Luke did not expect us to stop where we stopped last week. He expected us to read last week's passage along with this week. What happened last week that had three, that happened three times? Peter denied his Lord 
three times. You see, Luke wants us to deal with the reality that there are no innocents here other than Jesus. From Jesus' closest friends, his closest disciples, Judas betrayed him, Peter denied him, the, the, the Jewish leaders lied about him, the, Jew, the, 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 the people, his countrymen screamed to have Barabbas release and crucify him. The Roman authorities, knowing he was innocent, crucified him. See, not one person in any of these circles even had the slightest suspicion that Jesus was guilty of anything, had done anything wrong. And yet for each one, their own personal self-interest rose up and caused them to, 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 to turn on Jesus or turn away from Jesus or turn him over to die. Incredible injustice. It's, it, it is rampant selfishness. See, like I said, the message of the cross unmasks the human heart, shows us for what we are. And though I hate to admit it, I have no doubt that had I been there, my own personal self-interest would have welled up and I would have done my part to see Jesus crucified. Not only that, but we see in Jesus' behavior what righteousness looks like and how unlike us it looks. Here's the only totally innocent person ever. And he's been treated with this kind of abuse. Raw, physical, emotional, psychological Abuse And his abusers are not just some random crazy on the freeway. They're everyone. From his closest friends, from the top to the bottom of society. Everyone. How unjust, how incredibly hurtful. And yet in the midst of all of this, Jesus remains strong. He remains loving. He remains forgiving. You know, how do you respond to even a slight personal affront? How do I? How do you respond when somebody, a co-worker, slights you? Do you get angry and seethe inside? Or, or, or do you feel diminished and withdraw and, and, and shut down, pull away in fear? How do you respond when, when somebody misunderstands you or misinterprets you or misrepresents you? How do you respond when somebody doesn't treat you with the respect that you think you deserve? How do you respond when a family member is, is thoughtless of your feelings? And how unlike him we are in ourselves. But do you want to be like him? Do you? In every situation, we saw that, that incredible, that powerful love and strength. Do you want to be strong like that? Do you want to love like that? Jesus neither cringes in fear nor rails in anger. Why? Because he trusted his Father. Absolutely. 
He knew these people, these men, what they had in their hearts. He knew what was in their minds. He knew what they were going to do to him. But he also knew that the Scripture said that when he was raised up, he would draw men to himself, that he would save us from our sins and enjoy a relationship with us. He knew that Scripture said that he would go and sit at the right hand of his Father, the way he put it, the right hand of the mighty God. And he believed that. He believed his father right in the midst of the abuse when it didn't feel so true. It didn't look so true. He still believed it. And that gave him his strength. Listen to Peter's words. 1 Peter 2. To this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. This is the message of the cross. By his wounds, you have been healed. He died on the cross for your sins. He died because of your sins. That's why He chose to go through all of this. Because He wanted a relationship with you. And that was the only way to it. He died for your sins in order to remove those sins. To remove the guilt and and, and the effects of those sins on your personality, on your character. To free you to be like Him. And as you trust Him, you keep Trusting Him like He trusted His Father. Even when things feel abusive, even when things are not under your control, as you keep trusting Him, you can be like Him. In fact, you will be like Him. That is the powerful message of the cross. Let's pray. Lord, we see in the cross your great love, your unthinkable, immeasurable strength, power. And Lord, we see in the cross our own sin, our own weakness, our own tendency to preserve ourselves, even at the expense of those we believe that we love. And Lord, we recognize that your character and ours aren't the same. That's why we want your life in us. Pray for any here who have never put their trust in you, never received that life, accepted the forgiveness that you purchased on the cross. Pray that you would move in those hearts today, that there would be an opening, a breaking, that their eyes would become open, Lord. They would turn to you. Accept what you've done. Accept your life. I pray for those of us who, who know you, that we would keep on entrusting ourselves to the one who judges rightly, that we would keep trusting you, that we would see you change us, we would see you manifest the life of Christ in us. Lord, we, we come having had our eyes open and we come humbly before you to receive your gift. Amen.